What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of writing, STEM, and storytelling. Our first guest will be writer Wiley Blevins, and we'll talk about writing for different grade levels. Then we'll have Professor Aaron Hawkins come and talk to us about STEM education. Our last guest will be author Philip Stead, and we'll talk about how he chooses stories. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with a review of Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow by Jessica Day George, and hear from some writers from the Life, the Universe, and Everything Writing Conference. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's As a librarian who has a master's degree in children's literature, one of the most common questions I get asked is, how can I help my child love to read? I often encounter parents or other concerned adults who really want an answer to this perplexing question. For those who lack basic motivation and interest for reading, my A number one recommendation to all adults is to make reading interesting. So often in schools, reading is uninteresting and not connected to students' needs and likes. To combat this, adults should let students explore reading that really interests them. I tell my students in my children's literature courses that there is no such thing as a non-reader, only a reader who hasn't found the right book yet. So one of the best things we can do as adults is to let children explore the wide range of reading out there that interests them until they are able to find that one text that opens the amazing world of books to them. One particular thing to note is that oftentimes this means we as adults need to step back a little and let our children explore things we may not feel are of the best quality. I, for one, really don't like to see children reading the latest book featuring their favorite television personality. But if that exploration leads them to understand how interesting and fun reading can be, then I'm for it. I've never met a real reader who doesn't move on from the lower quality once they find out how cool reading is. My own personal trajectory was from Nancy Drew to Dostoevsky, and I found that children given time will take a similar path. So supported by our guidance and interest, let's let children explore to their heart's content. And that's one way to help encourage reluctant readers straight from Rachel's world. Rachel's World. In today's book world, there are many labels for books. Picture books, chapter books, books are separated by genre, and books are separated by grade. Today, I have author and early reading specialist Wiley Blevins on the phone to discuss books for the earliest readers. Welcome, Wiley. Nice uh, nice to meet you. Wiley, one of the things that I find interesting about your work is when you talk about phonics and phonemic awareness and all these wonderful topics, you actually put things into practice because not only are you an author of professional books for teachers and others, you also write beginning readers and you also work to get these kinds of phonics and skills out to kids through the books that you write. So tell us a little bit about why you choose to write in that form. (laughs) I, that's a funny question to me because, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are writers and I think we write uh, for the age group that we were the happiest. Like <laughs> I really loved school when I first started and I loved, like I was at the very tail end of Dick and Jane. It was the last year it was used in our school. And I know those were, most people think those were really contrived stories and what have you, but just the, the whole process of, figuring out these words on the page and they created these wonderful stories in my mind. Um, you know, it's just, I, I, I like writing for very young readers. And I, I've, I've found throughout my career that a lot of the books that are written for very young readers tends to be very poorly written. And I speak a lot about this uh, in my, in my, the books that I write and the sessions I give. And I work with publishers on this because it's, it's, 
some of this, especially with instructional materials, some of this is kind of treated as sort of throwaway. And what's very interesting, back in, and this is kind of a long story, but back in 1985, there was a report that came out, Becoming a Nation of Readers. And they talked about, during our phonics lessons, having really high-quality text for the lesson. Some people call it decodable text. I call it accountable text, where children are accountable for the skills they're learning, both sight words and phonics. But they said that it should be instructive. There should be lots of words in these stories that sound out based on their phonics skills or practice their sight words. It should be engaging. These should be stories that are worth reading um, and, and fun to read, and it should be comprehensible. These stories should make sense. And so as, we, as I've worked throughout my career over the past 30-plus you know, years, I've seen a lot of text that, that doesn't meet this very high bar that was set back in the mid-'80s for the kind of text that we expose young readers to. And so I have this real passion about creating text that is very simple, that matches what they're learning so they have great opportunities to master that learning faster, but that is stories that they want to read, that's fun to read, that's engaging, worth rereading, worth talking about, worth writing about. I set a very high bar for that kind of text. And when I first started helping with publishers, I wasn't finding that kind of text. So that's why I began writing it and finding other people who could write to a, a higher level in terms of engagement and comprehensibility and all of that. That's kind of how I got in it. And so I've done some in, with the educational world, and I've been lucky enough to do some with uh, trade publishers as well, some early readers like with Penguin and others. So it's been really, really fun. Well, I am so glad that you have done that because I could not agree with you more. A lot of those beginning readers can get really dry and and sometimes didactic in their in their teaching ability. And I love this beautiful combination that you bring to the table uh, between solid phonics and solid instructional kinds of techniques, but also just fun, playful stories that yeah. that any kid is going to love. I I love your characters and how how you bring these these kinds of real, real kids to life um, with your stories. So how, how do you make that connection? How do you go back to that when I was happiness in first grade and, and kind of channel that childhood love? It, well, you kind of, you do have to do that. But I think part of it too is being around children a lot. Like I, I wrote a story once that um, was, was published by Penguin. It was one of the, in part of the early reader series. And I really got the idea. I was sitting in a park one day doing some reading, and I was watching this little girl come into the park, and there were a group of kids playing. And she just kind of walked up and was like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I want to be your friend. And they just started playing. And I was so sort of struck by her bravery and how we've lost that as adults. It was just a springboard for a really fun story about friendship and so on. So I think being around children, really listening to children, I mean really listening to them, and also trying to capture their voice in what you write. They're, like, I try to think about viewing the world as if I was five or six when I'm writing. Like, what, what created wonder? What was I curious about? What kinds of questions did I ask? How did I respond to things? Instead of thinking of it as an adult thinking about what I think a child would respond to, I really try to get on their level and speak to them from, from that vantage point. Reaching that childhood level is an amazing thing that you're so able to do in your beginning readers. But the other balance is bringing your expertise in phonics and phonemic awareness and, and all of this kind of instructional piece. So yeah. speak a little bit to, to how difficult that is to, to bring these beautiful stories that are well-written and structured, but at the same time keep the vocabulary limited and, and use a lot of rhyme and a lot of structures like that that are going to build phonemic awareness. Yeah, it's it's actually super hard. In fact, when I worked with publishers, it's really hard to find writers who will do it because it's so hard. It's it's like a puzzle. You know, you have the skills that, you know, children have learned at a certain age or a certain time in a particular grade, like kindergarten or first grade, and you look at the, the small set of words you have to work with. And it, it's just, you know, for me, it's like a creative challenge, which I find quite fun. Other people just are like, no. <laughs> they don't want to go there. Uh, but I enjoy it. I enjoy trying to create really fun, interesting stories. And and sometimes these early stories, the art also helps you with that. So you have to be sort of creative and playful about that. You know, sort of the art direction carrying some of that. But still, it's it's like a it's like a puzzle. 
and I enjoy it. And I really want children to have success from the very beginning. And I talk about, when I talk about decodable text or accountable text being used in phonics lessons, I remind teachers it's not just about them gaining mastery of their phonics and sight word skills. It's also about them developing the I can do it attitude from the very beginning. You know, I've done these studies where I've looked at the different kinds of texts that are used during phonics lessons, something that's more controlled and something that's less controlled. And I've sort of traced how children who have the less controlled and the text gets harder, they don't have the tools to attack it, how they begin to lose that I can do it attitude. Because let's face it, it's hard work in these early years. There, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of skills to learn. The skills are thrown at you very quickly. It's tough work. And we want children to have this attitude that I can do it. They don't give up and they put in the, the effort and the, they have the motivation to keep going. And I think these early stories that give them that are really, really powerful tools, not just for, like I said, mastering the skills, but also continuing that I can do it attitude. That balance between instruction and skill levels and then just building confidence and self-efficacy and being able to do it, I think is an amazing balance that we need to achieve, particularly at this level. How do you do that, though? How do you push the How do you push the boundaries? Because you have to keep it within a structural level that would be appropriate for the the learning outcomes that we're looking at for a certain age. But I'm certain mm-hmm. that you want to kind of push some extras and and kind of make it a little bit more direct. So how do you balance that between you know pushing the boundaries and and helping them grow, but also keeping it within a structure of the story that is where they need to be developmentally. Yeah, I mean, I loosen the restrictions as we go up to the 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 grades, you know, the months through kindergarten first. So the, the the sort of the tight connection between what they've learned and what they're reading can get a little, it can lessen a bit as you as you go up. So, and I also I, I know some people who create these these little books really are so tight about we can only use those words if they can sound out. But for me. If, if I want to do a story and I want the main character to be an elephant, children love stories about funny elephants. Well, I'll have an elephant and it's just the big E word and children learn the big E word. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not so overwhelming. Like I think sometimes we get so, so focused on this uh, controls and numbers of words and so on that we forget that it's all about the story and making meaning from the story and the enjoyment of reading and I've been able, I think, throughout the years to be able to loosen up a little bit in those enough to where it doesn't distract from a child getting through the story, but also adds a level of engagement that will make them want to read and reread the story to to build fluency with those skills. And it is a a very delicate balance. Uh, One of the things that happened back in 2000 that's caused some problems for us is that for the first time, two states, California and Texas, required that there be this kind of tax and instructional programs. And I was very happy about that um, because it was uh, not there. And so teachers would teach a phonics lesson, they'd go over and read this book, and there was very little connection and very little opportunity to apply the skills, and children were mastering the skills. So I was glad there was this instructional tool, these little controlled text in the phonics lesson that served as a scaffold to these other kinds of things children were reading. But what happened was the states required a certain percentage of decodability, one state 75, the other 80. And so as publishers began creating these early books, it became more of a numbers game. You know, they were more concerned about meeting this percentage and less concerned about the quality of the text and the comprehensibility and the engagement and those kinds of things. And so I really sort of try to help publishers take a step back from that um, and, and, and fix some of those issues. So, for example, I did a study on these kinds of texts, and I, I identified seven big problems with these kinds of texts, and it helped publishers try to revise their texts and over, overcome some of those issues that we have better quality kinds of stories for our very young readers to read. And all the while they're reading these very simple stories, we're also reading to them great books great picture books and, and informational texts and things like that to build the vocabulary and the knowledge of the world and all these other things that are so important during these early years. 
Wiley, thank you so much. I appreciate you honoring even our youngest readers in that way and allowing them to have interesting, engaging stories, but also balance for that instructional content. I am so grateful that you have used your expertise and research to to write some great stories as well and to, to have some great beginning readers out there. So I challenge all of my listeners to, to run out and check it out, especially if you have, have a beginning reader at home. There, there's some great stuff out there that, that you can find that great engaging stories with instructional elements as well. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Wiley, thank you. This has been just delightful. I appreciate so much your passion and your advocacy for all of this. Everything you say just kind of goes down in my mind as yes, yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I I know that I know that and I I unfortunately I like you I see publishers and even school teachers and principals who just who just don't quite get it and I really appreciate that there are people out there like you who who are advocating for instructional techniques and stories that are really going to meet the needs of these students in a in a more effective way so thank you for the work you do. Oh my pleasure. I appreciate it. Wiley Blevins is an early reading specialist and author. Now, it's story time with a review of Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow by Jessica Day George. My name is Jacqueline Acey, and I'm an aspiring teacher. Two years from now, I hope to have my very own classroom filled to the brim with books. As an elementary school student, reading was my very favorite thing to do, although sometimes I struggled to find books that interested me that were age-appropriate. Last month, I came across a book that 12-year-old me would have loved and 20-year-old me really enjoyed. Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow is a traditional fantasy novel written by Jessica Day George. This book is based on the Nordic fairy tale, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, and to me, felt like a snowy Beauty and the Beast with the characters from Shane and Hale's Princess Academy. The book begins with the introduction of a woodcutter Jarl Oskarsson and his wife, Frida, and their nine children. His youngest daughter, simply known as The Lass, is left without a name because by the time her mother gave birth to her, Frida was so disappointed that the baby was a girl she refused to name her. The story follows The Lass as she agrees to go with a great magical white bear for a year. In exchange, the bear promises wealth for her family. The more time the last spends in the bear's castle, the more she begins to wonder why she's there. Her curiosity begins a chain of events that causes her to learn the language of the trolls, travel to the four corners of the earth, and outwit a troll on her wedding day. There's plenty of adventure, a bit of mystery, and just the right amount of romance. This book has themes of bravery, familial sacrifice, and triumphant love. There were three things that I loved about this book. First, the characters. I'm a sucker for fairy tales, and I loved the unique spin on this one. I loved the heroism of the lass and her determination to do what she felt was right. I related to her curiosity and to the loving relationship she had with her oldest brother. I loved the kindness of the bear and the wickedness of the trolls. I laughed at each of the lass's siblings and found myself relating her family relationships to my own. Jessica Day George did an incredible job making even the secondary characters real and changing. Each character showed some sort of development over the course of the book, which is part of what made it so enjoyable. Second, I loved how clean this book was. There was definitely a touch of romance, which I'm also a sucker for, but I was never worried that I would turn the page and read something that would make me uncomfortable. I would be perfectly okay with any of my future kids reading this book as soon as they were able. The content was entirely appropriate, but wasn't boring. This book would be great for a mid-elementary school student who is reading way above grade level and still looking for clean books to read. There wasn't any language, any violence, any sexual content, or anything else that made me want to cringe. Finally, I love the versatility of this book. I enjoyed it as a chick flick junkie, but I also enjoyed it as a feminist. I enjoyed it as a history lover and as a fantasy reader. It wasn't sappy enough that it would push away boy readers who enjoy a good adventure. If a young boy can get past the feminine-looking cover, he'll find stories of a great hunt, of determined, crafty characters, and of suspense and mystery. I really enjoyed reading this book, and I wish that 12-year-old me would have known about this author. Each of the books that she writes follow the same pattern of exciting characters, clean content, and versatile stories. I loved the feel-good story and the happy ending that left me feeling closure, 
but left just enough room for imagination. All in all, Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow was perfect for me and is perfect for all types of readers. When you ask a child what their favorite subject in school is, it might just be math or science. Mathematics, science, engineering, all of the STEM subjects are essential for the growth of children's literacy. Today, I have BYU professor Aaron Hawkins in the studio with me. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron, as most of our listeners know, we talk about literacy really broadly here at Worlds Awaiting. And one of the literacies that I think sometimes we don't really talk about are those kinds that are related to the STEM fields, the, the science, the technology, the engineering, and math. And you have some really great insights and expertise, so I'm excited today to chat with you about that. So to start out, let's talk about what are kind of some of the possibilities for STEM education, particularly for our children. What What is the potential that those fields have? I think going forward and even now, as children become adults and choose their careers, almost all of them will have something to do with STEM um, more and more. So having a background in science and math can only help them as they chart their path into the future. And um, a lot of STEM activity happens in teams. Very few scientists or engineers are working all on their own anymore. So um, teamwork is also an important STEM skill. Being creative and coming up with solutions that no one has thought of, obviously, is also important for all of these fields. And obviously that can apply to lots of different problems, not just math and science and what you're trying to figure out. So if you are interested in creating new things or, or, or solving problems in, in any way, then then that STEM background obviously helps you out. I agree with you totally that these um, fields are integral to more than just the STEM, yeah. the STEM yeah. professions and fields. They really right. have these basic skills involved in them. But the, the trouble is sometimes there's a real stigma <laughs> related to these fields or yeah. they're like, I'm not a, ma- you know, I'm not a math uh-huh. person or I can't mm-hmm. do math or that's too complicated mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. So how do we kind of maybe overcome some of these barriers to help people understand the importance of these fields? Well, um, one way we're trying to to do that is outreach problem uh, outreach uh, programs for um, kids that are quite young um, to get them excited about these different topics and help them understand that there is a it's a big umbrella really there are lots of activities that happen that could be considered part of the STEM field even a a very technologically centered company has um, not just engineers and uh, real scientists working for them, but the whole marketing and HR efforts, those all still kind of fall within that STEM umbrella because you still have to understand the the technology and the... So, you know, maybe you're not the greatest at math or, or science, but there is still room within that STEM umbrella for you if, if you want if you want to do it and discovering that is at a young age is is important because often yeah it does get dis- you're discouraged and and uh, schools maybe don't do a good job at, at explaining what exactly science and engineering really is what are careers like you know it's easy to understand what a doctor does or um, a lawyer what they do but what a scientist and engineer does all day, that's a little bit more vague and nebulous to people. I, I think that's a really interesting point to make that sometimes it's the kind of nebulous nature of it that there's so much possible mm-hmm. that it makes it more it, tricky for us to kind of connect to where we would actually be. So allowing kids to kind of play around in the fields and to explore and 
particularly at a very early age, that kind of playful nature of what we would do things, I think is a really great way to do that. But you know, I know there's lots of talk about barriers for specific types of students with STEM. Mm-hmm. So do you see that to be the case that there are specific populations that are particularly being having more barriers to getting into STEM education? So we have difficulty recruiting and maintaining a um, large number of females in our program. So for whatever reason, by the time female students reach college age, most of them have decided, I don't want to do anything <laughs> engineering related, or I don't understand it, or um, it's not something that girls do. And we try to fight those stereotypes and those ideas, but it it's difficult if, if they've had that ingrained into them um, throughout their junior high and high school years. Aaron, if you were going to coach a young person, if you were going to give them some advice, let's say, you know, they're just beginning high school, they're a freshman in high school, they're looking towards their future, what kinds of things would you say to them about why they should be an engineer? What what kind of coaching would you give to them? Or I think it's a great preparation for whatever you want to eventually do. Maybe um, being a working engineer is not your your goal in life or, or where you'll end up. But even if you go into law or medicine or you're a dentist or any number of, of end career paths, having that foundation of solving problems, understanding um, math and science and the world around you is, n- is always going to be a good idea. That is always going to be a valuable resource that you can fall back on and you will have an advantage over those around you who don't have that understanding. So you can't go wrong with that path. And I always encourage my students that make decisions that will keep your your potential open and uh, that will allow you to, to make as many choices in the future as possible. Don't shut any doors until you till the last possible moment. Well, and even you don't shut your doors as an adult. I mean, so many of us change careers, so many of us follow paths. So I think that that is amazing advice. And I I really would um, encourage all of our listeners to take that to heart because that's how I coach my students too, right? Keep as many paths Mm -hmm. open as possible, particularly as a young person. You need to try everything. You need to see where your strengths and talents lie and you need to learn everything. So I think that that is amazing advice. As we close up our conversation today, Aaron, um, maybe give us one idea or one takeaway that you think our listening audience should have um, about this idea of STEM education and encouraging our students to be involved in those fields. Um, it's a background that you won't regret. And find someone you know that's, that, that is working in that area and use them as a mentor. Very rarely do you um, just fall into the field. Most people know somebody, some adult who is encouraging them um, along the way. So look around and find, uh, find someone involved in STEM already and, and learn from them. That is a perfect way to end. So let's hope that all those adults out there start looking for kids to mentor <laughs> and kids looking for adults yeah. to mentor them. Thank you so much for your time today, Aaron. Yes. Aaron Hawkins is a professor of electrical and computer engineering here at BYU. Next, we sent our student production assistant, Natalie Anderson, to the Life, the Universe, and Everything conference here in Provo to talk to authors about their inspirations and motivations. Let's take a listen. Who is your favorite author, if you have one? My favorite author is Dan Wells. He's actually at this conference. It's really great. He writes young adult literature, and he's just an all-around fantastic person. Oh, gosh. Uh, I know too many. <laughs> I've always told people asking me my favorite authors, like asking me which of my children is my favorite, even though I don't have children yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's really hard. Okay, some books that I recently read that I love are by it's The Wednesday Wars and Okay for Now by Gary Schmidt. I would say, if I was forced to pick, um, probably Orson Scott Card. 
Um, I like my favorite childhood author was Jessica J. George and Shannon Hale were my favorite two for a really long time. And then I got into Brandon Mole and Brandon Sanderson and I love Jules Verne. So it's just kind of hard to have to like pick. It's almost like by genre. Uh, Mary Robinette Cole. Um, Carolyn McClure. I think I'm going to have to go with Tamora Pierce. And what inspires you to create, whether that's writing or anything? Uh, so I had my origins at the Chris McAuliffe Space Education Center, where I was exposed to stories firsthand, in which I was totally immersed in them. And from there, I decided that I wanted to give people that experience through books as best that I could. And so I started writing and never stopped. One of my professors at BYU said, you're a good writer. What are you doing with that? Um, I started writing stories when I was six, and I would draw picture books for my mother. And then when I got into about the second grade, every time I'd finish my writing assignments, my second grade teacher would be like, go write me a story, go write me a story. And so that's kind of where I picked it up. It was just this, I love to tell stories. And so it just kind of came by being inspired by my second grade teacher to just kind of push me to actually do it. So I write because I feel like I have a message to share with people and the way that I feel that the I feel that the best way to reach people is through telling a good and entertaining story. Seeing things that other people have done that are like what I want to do um, and seeing the ways they do it well and wondering I bet I could do that you know but with my own twist. And so realizing that I could write for somebody beyond myself was really cool for me, and it made me believe that I could do it. For me, it's just an uh, expression of who I am as a person, I think. I just always have an urge to make things. And uh, that then uh, trickled into writing uh, about the time I was in seventh grade. Uh, and it's just been going ever since. I want to give people heroes that they can root for. I want to give people stories that they can remember and that they can retell and that will inspire them to tell their own stories. As the old saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. But rarely is it said that a thousand words paint a picture. We're on the phone today with author and storyteller Philip Stead, who certainly knows how to paint a gorgeous picture. Welcome, Philip. Hi, thanks for having me. Philip, you are a grand storyteller. What is it about a particular story that grabs you or makes you want to tell it and get it out there into the world? I wish I had a good answer for that, but the the real answer is that stories really seem to come from almost nowhere. And much like this story, which began just with one random image from a magazine, it's often an image that pops into your head that you can't shake. And if you can't shake it for long enough, you start to want to attach a story to it. So uh, the first book that Aaron and I did together was a book called A Sick Day for Amos McGee. And it's a very simple story about a a zookeeper who uh, cares for his animal friends. One day he can't make it to work because he's ill and all the animals come to his house and care for him instead. Um, And as simple as that story arc is, uh, it took me a long time to find it, or relatively long time to find it, because the story didn't begin as a story. The story began as a single image, an image of uh, an old man and an elephant that Erin had been working on, just drawing on her own at the kitchen table for several days. And that image just stuck in my head so much that I really wanted to create a story that could exist around it. And that's where the story of Amos McGee uh, came from. And so many stories have been like that. Um, Aaron will be drawing something or maybe we'll see something together. And the image becomes the fuel for the story. That really is interesting to me because as an artist and when I talk to other artists and illustrators, that, that seems to be a common theme that I hear and is this sense that, that it's an image, that it's a visual that brings the story and then the words come after that. Is that typical of all of your work or is that something that changes depending on the story? I would say it's definitely typical of my work, but but I'm often a little bit confused as to how other writers might work because I, I really fell into writing. I 
always planned to be an artist first. I went to art school. Um, I spent all of my childhood drawing, uh, and I never really considered that I might become a writer. It wasn't until uh, after I'd left art school that I sort of started to pick up writing because I wanted more control over the stories that I might tell. Uh, but still, I always think visually, and, and stories tend to come primarily out of images. Um, I think because Aaron and I both went to art school and because we were both artists first, we were able to communicate well in that way um, and, and work through story ideas together through the language of, of image instead of words. For me, the key to a good picture book or a good illustrated novel or any of those types of things is how well the pictures and the text integrate. So particularly when you are looking at a brand new story, is there a specific thought process you go through about what's going to be an image and what's going to be text? Or are there things that you know that an image is um, more capable of conveying versus a textual passage would be more capable of conveying? Uh, truthfully, there's, there's just so many possibilities for why we might choose one image versus another that, that it's hard to necessarily answer very easily. I will say that sometimes one thing that we'll do is if, if there's a passage of a book that we really want the reader to linger on, uh, something that we really want to show is an important passage, maybe we want a child and an adult to spend a moment together contemplating, that's when we'll actually take the text out and, and really rely solely on image. So going back to that book that Aaron and I made together, um, our first book together, Sick Day for Amos McGee, there's a passage in the middle uh, where all the animals have, have left the zoo together they're, and they're waiting for a bus and then they all get on the bus and then they end up at, at Amos's house. Uh, that entire sequence is told completely without words. And uh, the interesting thing to watch when you present this book to children is how much the story slows down at that point. Um, the natural instinct for any reader uh, when they're reading words is to turn the page as soon as you get to the period. As soon as the sentence is over, you turn the page. But if there's no indicator for when you ought to turn the page, it invites the reader to really spend time with the image, to start telling the story to themselves, to exist inside of that image much, much longer than you normally would. So that's one of the, the reasons of many that we might choose uh, you know, one illustration path versus another. Thank you for offering that insight. I really enjoy it when illustrators articulate that because it, for me as a reader, I, I see that path where the image just slows us down. And I love that we are able to take that time and to see what other things the story adds. I know particularly one of the things that I love about your works and Aaron's works as well is the way you use font and color of the text to not only make the text a readable part of it, but also to make it an integral part of the overall design of the book. So is that something you very consciously think about from the beginning of the process? Uh, it is, actually. I, I went to art school. I studied illustration, but I also studied graphic design. And in particular, my focus was uh, type design and topography. And so with all of our books, we take a broad approach to how we we think about the book. It's not just text. It's not just illustration. It's not just design. It's all three things. And we have the luxury of living together so we can really talk about these things together. Most authors and illustrators really don't get to communicate the same way that we do. In fact, they may not even meet each other throughout the process of making a book. But because we're married and because we've always done it this way, uh, we, we're given a lot of latitude to make all of these decisions within our books. That kind of symbiotic relationship that you've achieved, I think, is one of the things for me that just makes your books um, individually and collectively just so much stronger. So what's coming in the future? What are, what are some of the things that we can expect out of your studio? Well, I have a book that's called All the Animals Where I Live. It's a picture book, but it's more of a, almost like a personal essay in a picture book form. It's about all the animals um, where I live, uh, Aaron and I live on a 60-acre farm in northern Michigan, and it's basically the book is basically a walk through the seasons and how the animals move through the space, how my dog relates to those animals, and it's just a book I'm very proud of. It's a book, I think, where I've taken a lot of inspiration, actually, from the illustration style of Aaron to make this book. I've been watching Aaron make art now since we were teenagers, and this is probably the first time where I've thought I'm really going to try to work in a, in a style that's somewhat similar to her, because often our work is very, very different. 
Um, but there's a softness to Erin's work and a, a deliberateness or a deliberation to her work that is not necessarily always present in mine and I felt was really important for that book. Erin's um, next book will be out in 2019. Uh, we had to take a small break uh, for the birth of our child. But that is a book called Music for Mr. Moon, um, which I'm very, very happy with so far. I'm actually looking at the artwork on her desk right now. It's not quite done. <laughs> so, um, But readers should, should be looking for that one in, I believe it's the spring of 2019. Philip, thank you so much. This has been an insightful and inspiring conversation. Thank you for the work that you do and for Erin for the work that she does. You are making the world of storytelling and the world of children's literature a much richer and happy place. So I look forward to all the things coming in the future. Well, thanks so much. This was wonderful. Philip Stead is an author of children's picture books. Now, I'm going to step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Today, I've got my student librarians, Emily and Taylor, in the studio with me to talk about classics. Let's chat a little bit about the classics. I know both of you are English majors, and so you probably are well-versed in the classics. <laughs> the canon. Yeah, the, can- yeah. Yeah, the canon. <laughs> the, the canon. And that, with capital letters, yes, right? Yes. It's, not, it's not the lowercase canon. It's the canon. <laughs> and one of the things that I have tr- been trying to verse you in in the library is other things other than the canon. So tell me a little bit about your opinion. Let's start out, talk about your opinion with what place does the canon have? And particularly, what place does the canon have in like libraries and schools? Why, why is it important? Why, why, why would we think that the canon is important? Well, I think obviously it wouldn't be canonized unless it was good writing. It has good things. It brings out really great rhetoric and literary elements that people can discuss. Mm -hmm. And I think beyond that, it's also something, it is old writing, usually. And older and younger people can connect with the same reading. This is me. I'm thinking of all yeah. like, the good sides about yeah. it before we start yeah. bashing the canon. I think <laughs> that... We're going to totally bash the canon just in case anybody was you know, anticipating the conversation. But let's say some good things. So yeah, I, I think one of the things I love about it too is thematically it speaks to us over a long period of time, right? Because these Mm -hmm. are universal themes that have obviously been timeless universal things, right? So it's not like this pop culture that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be timeless to the 1980s, right? And when we look back on it, we're like, ooh, that was the 1980s, (laughs) right? So there's this timeless sense to it. So I I really enjoy that. But there are some other good things. Other other things you think? Yeah, I love... Um, the language of the the classics. I mean, I am a diehard Austin fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that's not the canon, right, right, right. unfortunately. Well, yes, and, but that's but, one of the negatives, though, because there's some of these great yeah, things that, that aren't, aren't allowed aren't, to be canon. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other piece of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I just think the quality of the language back then was so it's so different from what we have now. I mean, and if you talk to any linguists, they'll tell you that the language hasn't deteriorated (laughs) it's just changed but um and I do agree with that but I I just love the quality of the language and how you know flowery it is and just it just it's so pleasant to the ear I I love that pleasant to the ear because it is it has this wonderful sense of that pleasantness yeah and I think that it can be a little bit thick for because it is different language (laughs) but there's that sense of accomplishment when you understand it and it does require more thought and contemplation when you think about it and being able to find Mm -hmm. that in reading it's almost like being able to solve a difficult math problem that sense of satisfaction. Such a great way to put it. Yeah. Such a great way to put it. Yeah, there's that sense of satisfaction. But I will say, as far as my research and the things that I have read go, is that particularly for kids in high school, uh, the, the classics, the canon that we read in high school actually turns them off reading. Mm-hmm. And there's yes. a lot of research that says reading the classics um, – you know, is making a lot of our kids non-readers. And when I train my teachers, I always tell them we're training readers. We're not training future English majors, yes. right? I think that's a really yes. good point. <laughs> yeah, because, because, you know, the three of us were like, oh, 
all the classics. <laughs> we love them. Because, you know, we're kind of like English majors, right? Yeah. But we're not always training that. So how would we – what kind of things do we need to tell people out there, particularly as that we're thinking about the classics, as to why maybe the classics might not be – that great. I mean, what what makes them? What are those negative things? Do you think that are making the classics get kids to not read? I think it just feels inaccessible to them because, partly because of the language, partly because of the setting. You know, it's so um, far in the past, and it just doesn't feel like they can relate to the issues that are being discussed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I think that as well. But something that I really stood out to me one time when Rachel and I were actually having a discussion about this <laughs> was that um, talk to someone about what what did you get from the Scarlet Letter? What did you get from things that these writers got? Like what message are they getting across? Like you said, a lot of these morals are timeless. Yeah. And I think you can find these exact same morals and lessons in books today Yeah, that are more relatable to children. Yeah. And to to young adults, yeah. and so I think that's a really good advocate to to move past to think. Let's think of other ways to teach these morals that are more accessible mm-hmm. to people. And I think that's because it's doable. Why not? Like, there's a better. That's such a great point. <laughs> because it's why not? You know why yeah. not? I mean that that's the thing for me. I mean, for me particularly with kids, and I you know speak to this if from what you think, but to me. If you have to wade through all of the language mm-hmm. and all of the complexities that go into classic literature just to get to the theme, you're not going to do it, right? Because if I read The Scarlet Letter and get a beautiful sense of you know what it means to be ostracized or what it means to be bullied, that's great. But I did it by wading through all of that. But if I don't have the capabilities to do that and I can't wade through all of that, I'm not even going to get to the theme, right? So if the theme or the feeling is what we want them to get to, doesn't it seem better to get it in a more direct way that will actually help them get to the theme than to have to force them to wade through all of this beautiful, wonderful (laughs) language to get to that point? I mean, I think, you know, we're saying, you know, you can have one bite of chocolate cake, but first you have to eat all the broccoli in the world <laughs> to get to it, right? Yeah. It, 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 it mm-hmm. kind of feels odd to me that we're, we're trying to force them into that by getting them through the stuff that may not be necessary for them to get through to get to the theme. Does that make total yeah. sense? Yeah. <laughs> well, when you were saying that, it made me think at the time that those things were written, people understood language that way naturally. That mm-hmm. was their modern parable if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So why can't we make our current right. parables? People are making them, and there are beautiful books. Let's talk. We can okay, talk let, about the yeah, beautiful let's, books. Let's talk about the beautiful books. So what are some beautiful books of today's books that you would say would be like those kind of can, canonical classics mm-hmm. that we should be looking towards? So what would you suggest? Well, so I – Wolf's Hollow is Yay, a really good book. Like, I knew that yes, we were yeah, going to think that yeah. this was going to come <laughs> yeah. up. Um it's I, I don't want this to be like heretical, but it could be the new To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It I, definitely no, has I, that. No heresy involved. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So why? I mean, why is it the new To Kill a Mockingbird? It, it has the same themes of uh, a girl that wants to stand up for others despite the thoughts and um, opinions of the thought bubble that everybody's stuck in yeah i think there's a bubble the societal norms, the societal yeah. norms that yeah. people are stuck in and she needs to stand up for herself and come out of those norms and show that young children can do that it's or that anyone can like yeah. it, even if this little girl can do it why can't you mm-hmm. having more understanding that these are just yeah. the way it is why can't you just push that bubble push the lines yeah to something greater more to have more humble and kinder thoughts towards others i love it that's a great one okay taylor what's your one you want to end with us i was thinking about um my book of life by angel oh beautiful written by martine levitt Levitt. Mm -hmm. yeah gorgeous Um, book and and when you go and tell people what it's about it's it's about um a teenage girl who's been 
taken into prostitution yeah. on the streets of New York. Tough topic. Yes. Beautiful book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So why is it why is it a classic in your mind? Um it's just it's well okay, it's a novel written in verse in free verse. Um and it just goes through her thought process and how um just it tells the story of her life in such a beautiful way. Um, and we actually had a conversation with Martine Levitt about her writing this book. And she she told us um, the the story behind her writing this story. Um, she was in New York and she met a prostitute and she just realized this is a woman just like me. She has just as much value and just as much she's just as much of a human being as I am and she's just as important as I am. And she was volunteering at a soup kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And she thought the person she was sitting with was just another volunteer and it was oh, a soup kitchen for yeah. prostitutes mm-hmm. to come to. And she found out that the person she was sitting next to was actually a prostitute. See, yeah. Beautiful stuff. It's yeah. just, yeah. and I read it and it made me cry. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's just a, a wonderful story about a girl who, finds herself in this awful situation and she doesn't know how really how she got there or how to get out. But um, she is so selfless and she she tries her best to save other girls from this situation. It's just, ugh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think in the end, I mean, no matter what it is, whether it's a classic or a new YA classic or a new book that's just come out, fundamental to me, literature is about exploring the human condition, Mm -hmm. making us more empathetic, making us understand other people in the world around us in a different way. And no matter what kind of book it is, if it does that, it's done its job. And that's, in the end, the kind of things we need to be looking for, right? Beautifully said. (laughs) Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that. I can sum up our conversation in such a wonderful way. Thank you so much, Emily Taylor, for your insights today into classics and how we can maybe look to other things as true classics. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Emily and Taylor for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had a great show. First, we spoke with author Wiley Blevins about writing for different grade levels. Then we spoke with Professor Aaron Hawkins about STEM education. Our last interview was with author Philip Stead, and we spoke about how he chooses stories. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.